Can I guess what you did over the weekend? You can go ahead and guess. <laughs> you spent it on the phone with trade lawyers. Uh, like a little bit of that, but not not all that much time. I did manage to relax a little bit. One thing I did find over the weekend, there's I got a list of... So before this solar trade case, there have been 17 times that the US has implemented some form of protectionist measure under Section 201, which is what we're talking about today. And I was just looking at the list of the the 17 previous instances. For example, did you know that uh, we imposed import tariffs on CB radio receivers in the late 70s and early 80s? (laughs) Or or a certain kind of mushrooms uh, in the early 80s? Uh, Or actually... At wheat gluten in 1998 through 2001, we had import tariffs on, oh, I'm sorry, we had a maximum import quota on wheat gluten. So for all the celiac people out there, um, that was probably a boon. Lamb meat, certain steel wire rods, heavyweight motorcycles, broom corn brooms. I don't know what a broom corn broom is, but apparently it was a big issue from a trade perspective at some point. You were busy over the weekend. You lied to me. (laughs) (laughs) Clothespins. Did you know that we had a trade case over clothespins in the late 70s? I knew none of these things, and I'm hoping to to learn more. We are not talking about mushrooms, gluten, or clothespins. We are talking about solar. And uh, you do not disappoint me, Shale. Uh, that is Shale Khan. He is my co-host, our senior vice president at GTM and the head of GTM Research. I am Stephen Lacey, the editor-in-chief of Green Tech Media, and this is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation. While Shale was busy this weekend reading about non-electric cookware and lamb meat, and the rest of the country was busy interpreting Donald Trump's tirade against NBA and NFL players, the U.S. solar industry was busy interpreting a potentially monumental decision from international trade officials, which is why we're talking about all those other random industries. In a 4-0 to vote, the U.S. Trade Commission determined that imported solar cells and modules had caused serious injury to domestic manufacturers. Now they're going to try to figure out how to solve the problem, as they've defined it, and pass those recommendations on to Mr. Trump. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, has been very outspoken about wanting tariffs, any tariffs. So when the recommendations get passed to the president, the likelihood that he'll uh, implement some kind of penalties on imported solar equipment will be high. And the question now is the details. And we've got a few details from the Friday decision. So, Shale, what exactly happened on Friday? So let's start by talking about how this process works when there's a Section 201 petition filed. So Cineva filed the original petition in May of this year. SolarWorld then joined the petition soon afterwards. So now we have co-petitioners, Cineva and SolarWorld. Um, and the first big step was, would the International Trade Commission take up the case? Was there enough of a case for the ITC to move forward and do an investigation. They said yes to that. So then the next big milestone was what happened on Friday, which was the injury determination. So this is the International Trade Commission deciding whether or not the domestic industry, in this case, the domestic cell manufacturing industry for solar, had suffered um, what's called serious injury as a result of increasing volume of imports. 
So largely, people expected that the ITC was going to decide in the affirmative as it did on Friday. I think most people expected that to happen. It was still somewhat shocking because of what it means for what comes next. But generally speaking, the betting odds were on this happening. Yeah, let me just quickly interrupt you there. Uh, Is it is it likely that the that the ITC will rule in favor of the petitioners when we look at the, the history of these cases? Actually, if you look at the record historically, it's been in less than half of the cases where the ITC has determined that there's been serious injury. It's in 75 cases under Section 201 since 1974, which is when the Trade Act was passed. Um, In the 73 cases prior to this year, these two we don't know about yet, but in the 73 prior cases, um, the ITC found injury in 34 of them, so a little under half. So it's not generally a slam dunk that if you file one of these petitions that the ITC will determine that there's been serious injury. But I think the reason that everyone largely expected it in this case was that the underlying statistics that the ITC generally looks at all pointed in favor of serious injury. In other words, there was increasing volume of imports, there was decreasing prices, and U.S. manufacturing has suffered. So those are the three main characteristics, and they were all there. Okay, so I just needed to get that on the table. Sorry for the deviation. Uh, What's next in the process then? Right. Okay, so the ITC did determine injury on Friday. And the thing that really matters about that, the reason that that has everybody up in arms and it made such big news is not that it was a surprise, but what it means now is that the ITC must recommend remedies Um, It means it must come up with some kind of remedy, and then it must hand recommended remedies directly to the president, and the president then has to make a decision. And so one way or another at this point, something will end up on President Trump's desk, and he will have to make a decision about it. And I think that's what has a lot of people running scared at this point. How that's going to work out timing-wise is, first, there will be a big hearing that will probably get a lot of press next week on October 3rd. Um, uh, that's the ITC hearing about what the remedies should be. Then the ITC will actually vote on what remedies to recommend uh, on October 31st. It'll be a, a spooky, scary Halloween for the solar industry. They will issue a remedy report to the president um, by November 13th. So that's when it'll hit Trump's desk. And then he has up to two months, so until mid-January, to decide what to do. Tariffs could then, or whatever comes out of it, could then ultimately be imposed basically immediately in January, or it could get pushed back a couple of months depending on what he ends up deciding. So sort of net, net, at the end of the day, whatever comes out of this is likely to emerge in the beginning of next year. Uh, One Trump administration official told Amy Harder over at Axios that the odds of the president agreeing to some kind of remedy are at 90%. So depending on what the recommendations are here, you know, we're likely to see some kind of action. And just to add a little bit more historical context there, I mean, that's not been the norm historically. So so as I said before, there were 73 cases prior to this year, 34 of them, the ITC uh, issued in the affirmative on injury. So then again, in, after that, they had to issue some recommendation to the president. So 34 times they did that. Only 19 of those times did the president actually implement some kind of remedy. So it was relatively common historically for the president to say, I see what you're saying, ITC, but there are bigger geopolitical factors at play here or something else is going on, and I don't want to implement these tariffs or quotas or whatever they might be. But I think the wisdom today is 
that's not going to happen in the Trump presidency, especially right now in the Trump presidency when he's clearly been very hungry for tariffs and hasn't really been able to implement them yet. So when something gets to Trump's desk, the likelihood seems quite high that he will do something. The question is what that something is. Over the months, I have been learning in real time. This is the first case of its kind that I've uh, ever had to report on and read about and deal with. And so when this four to zero vote came out, there were a lot of questions here internally about what it means when they can Basically, commissioners can uh, isolate individual countries and make a determination about each of those countries. And as I understand it, those are all countries that have free trade agreements with the United States. Talk about why there are there's specific language in this decision about certain countries around the world. Right. So the way that it works in these cases, so the thing about Section 201 that makes it such a big deal and why it's different from the previous trade case we had in solar a few years ago is that where that previous trade case was talking about dumping or, um, you know, illegal subsidies from a specific country or a specific set of countries. And so you'd impose whatever duties or tariffs on those specific countries. Section 201 presents the opportunity to impose some kind of import tariff or something on all imports from the entire world. But the way that it works when the ITC issues a recommendation is that they have to issue a ruling for the world, but then they have to specifically issue individual rulings for any country with which we have a free trade agreement. Um, so that's a whole bunch of countries. And then they did that last week on Friday when they issued this de- decision. And in doing so, they um, did decide that there had been injury due to some countries with which we have free trade agreements, specifically Korea and Mexico. But they also excluded a bunch of other countries where we have free trade agreements. So Singapore and Canada were two important ones that we can talk about, but also like six countries in Central America, Australia, Jordan, Colombia, Peru. So all of those countries now sort of by default will not be included in whatever remedies are ultimately come out of this. Now, there's some murkiness as to whether the president could decide to add those countries back in. The ITC in its press release about this specifically noted that the president will have the final decision here. But the sort of default version of this, whatever the ITC recommends to the president, will not include those countries. As far as I know, when the president was at the UN, he didn't get any verbal altercations with folks from Colombia, Jordan, Panama, and Peru. So uh, maybe those countries are are safe. <laughs> right. And like what that means, with, with, you know, we don't know what the ultimate result of this is going to be, but just imagine that it's some kind of tariff. That would mean that we have an import tariff on solar cells and modules imported into the U.S. from most of the world, but not from Australia, Jordan, Colombia, Peru, Panama, you know, Singapore, Canada, etc. So at some point, we should talk a little bit about what that might mean in terms of what this whole case causes in terms of the supply chain for solar, because it does add some additional nuance there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I do want to start with Singapore and Canada, two interesting countries, because REC Solar has a major cell fab in Singapore. So that company is safe. And then Canadian Solar set up, uh, I think, a decent sized module uh, facility in Canada in Ontario. So those are two potential winners, right? Sort of. REC Solar is clearer. So the REC Solar manufactures most of its cells and modules in Singapore. So they're 
out of out of Friday's decision, um, they made out the best. They're probably going to be exempt unless, of course, Trump decides to to try to add Singapore back in. Um, Canadian solar and just more generally Canada is a slightly more nuanced one because Canadian solar and a couple of other companies as well, Silfab, they do have manufacturing in Canada, but it's just module assembly, the final step in the value chain. And Right, so they're bringing a ton of components in from China or Taiwan or elsewhere and then assembling. Right, there. and and specifically they're bringing cells in from other countries. And the way that this petition is written, um, the subject merchandise, the sort of core thing that they're supposed to be imposing tariffs on is the cell, whether or not it is Im- uh, converted into a module. So technically... If Canadian Solar built its cell in China, shipped it to Canada, turned it into a panel, a module in Canada, that in theory would still be subject. So it's a benefit to them because they already have part of the value chain in Canada. In theory, they could add more. They could set up cell manufacturing there. But it doesn't mean that they immediately Mm -hmm, become mm -hmm. exempt. Okay, so then what about the rest of the world? Are there other countries that are perhaps set up to ramp up manufacturing capacity faster than others that are not covered under these penalties? Not really. And, you know, the countries that are listed, that are exempted here, largely don't have a whole lot of solar manufacturing to date. And what they do have will be at small scale, so it's not necessarily price competitive, and it's often also just module assembly. So it's not like by excluding these countries, the ITC opened itself up to just nothing happening and we just sort of shift the imports from wherever we're getting them now toward those countries. That's less likely to happen. But what you could imagine is that if a if a manufacturer who right now is manufacturing in countries that would be subject, so China or Malaysia or Vietnam or whatever, um, if they decide that they need to set up manufacturing somewhere else in order to keep serving the U.S. market, they could consider setting up manufacturing in the U.S., but they could also consider setting up manufacturing in any of these other countries that are exempt, some of which have you know, some benefits. They could have cheaper power, cheaper land. There might be incentives in place. So it does complicate that picture a bit. Mm-hmm. I do want to give a shout out to Julia Piper, our senior editor, and our staff writer, Julian Spector. They were at Solar Power International earlier this month, and they were asking a bunch of companies about what kind of impact tariffs, potential tariffs would have on their decisions to set up shop manufacturing operations in the U.S. And they got a lot of maybes. They got a lot of like, we'll wait and see. So uh, not a lot of like groundbreaking stuff, but it was an interesting lay, lay of the land. They did a great job of asking a bunch of different manufacturers. And interestingly, the Chinese manufacturer, BYD, um, you know, said that they would be interested in opening up more manufacturing facilities here in the U.S. But um, let's talk about that for a minute. Obviously, uh, the sort of case that the Trump administration would be making, at least in public, in about why they should impose the, any kind of import duties would be that domestic manufacturing of solar is suffering because of imports. And if we impose tariffs, we will see a lot more domestic manufacturing. So this is a super key question. Right, the, the the success of these tariffs would be predicated on the idea that you'd get a bunch more manufacturing in the U.S. And Julia and Julian went around and had a bunch of good conversations with with foreign manufacturers, many of whom are publicly to them, and then have been privately to us and others, um, 
exploring the idea of setting up manufacturing in the US. So that carries with it, like you said, nobody's committing at this moment, nor would it be smart to commit since we don't know what's going to come out of this case. But you know, nobody's committing, but they're but they're definitely exploring it. Um that sort of implies that maybe this actually could work, right? Like what if how great would it be if, you know, you imposed tariffs and then everybody just set up new manufacturing in the US and we had cost competitive solar still and we uh, had a bunch more manufacturing jobs as well. But I'm highly skeptical that that is going to happen for a bunch of reasons, but let me just give you the biggest one, and it has to do with timeline. Um, here's how this would work. Remedies would be introduced, tariffs would it be introduced early next year. If you are a manufacturer and you want to set up a cell and module manufacturing facility in the US, which you'd have to do, cells being much more capital intensive, expensive, and harder to do, you would take maybe 12 to 18 months to set up your manufacturing facility in the US. It takes time to build those. Just look at what's happening with the Solar City factory in Buffalo. Um, even once you do that, then you have to ramp it up to get it up to scale. And you, and you know, if you want to be competitive, you have to build a pretty large facility, 500 megawatts, maybe a gigawatt, something like that. So it takes you, you know, one to two years to begin actually really selling. Now, these tariffs, the, uh, the Section 201 tariffs, they're imposed for up to four years at a time. They can be extended. The president can decide to extend them another four years. So in theory, they could be in place for up to eight years. But by default, they're in place for up to four years. Now, here's the nuance. Generally speaking, they don't actually even last four years. Um, Oftentimes, they will be sunsetted early, either because the president just wants to sunset them early or more often and more recently because someone, another country, will submit a complaint to the World Trade Organization who almost always issues uh, a decision against the country that is imposing these safeguard measures. And so they get sunsetted early. And so, and that's what happened with the most recent steel case. That's been happening in every case. Of the, of the 19 cases where we've had any kind of remedy put in place, only in seven of those cases have the tariffs lasted the full four years or longer. And none of the cases since the introduction of the WTO in 1995 have seen that happen. Every single one of those, the tariffs or the quotas or whatever it is, have lasted less than four years. Was so, that mushroom or non-electric cookware? <laughs> that was that was wheat gluten and lamb meat <laughs> and certain steel wire rods and steel. The tariffs actually lasted 1.7 years, ultimately. So- so if you're a manufacturer and you're thinking about making a big, expensive decision to set up manufacturing in the United States, you want access to the U.S. market. So you have to take that consideration seriously. But if you're doing it because of these tariffs, the the period of benefit that you're going to get from this could be very short. If it takes you two years to set up manufacturing and the tariffs themselves only last three years, you've got one year's worth of benefit and then you still have this facility. So you really have to get comfortable with the idea that your manufacturing in the U.S. is going to be competitive whether or not tariffs are in place because the tariffs alone just won't do it for you. So I'm skeptical that we're going to see a big wave of domestic manufacturing in the U.S. if tariffs come into place. I think you might see a couple of manufacturers take the plunge anyway just because they they think strategically they just need to be selling into the U.S. right now. But is this going to be a renaissance of U.S. solar manufacturing? I really don't think so. So we know that we're likely not going to see this boom of activity as a result of foreign manufacturers setting up shop here. What about the two 
petitioners, Cineva and Solar World. What do we think about their potential expansion as a result of potential remedies? Right. So they're not filing this case to try to convince a bunch of foreign manufacturers to set up shop in the U.S. Obviously, they're they're filing the petition because they themselves want to be competitive with the foreign manufacturers and with imports. Uh, and, you know, it, <clears throat> I think if tariffs were imposed, you could easily imagine at least Solar World um, restarting manufacturing capacity that it had shut down and potentially expanding capacity as well. They already manufacture in, in Oregon. So, you know, they're not going to meet nearly the demand of the entire market, but, um, but they could expand capacity a little bit. Cineva, you know, it's, it's smaller and, and bankrupt. So a little harder to imagine, but I suppose it's possible. I mean, I don't know if you noticed this, but last week, SIA, the Solar Trade Association, which has come out pretty strongly in opposition to this case, they issued a little salvo where they sort of, I think they put out a press release that said, basically, Cineva and Solar World haven't proposed any kind of plan for survival. They haven't described how they're going to survive even with tariffs in place, which carried a sort of implication that like even with tariffs, these these companies are going down. Um, so that was a real like, that was a, that was a strong blow in this battle of public opinion. Among many strong blows. I didn't actually see that press release, but I saw a bunch of coverage coming out of SPI, particularly the opening session where a bunch of uh, pretty significant figureheads in the solar industry got up and just bashed Cineva in, in Solar World and, you know, bashed how they ran their companies. It wasn't just about the politics of the trade case. Like they got down and dirty and talking about why these were mismanaged companies. And that feels pretty new to me, and it just shows like how angry a lot of people in the industry are right now, and and quite frankly, desperate. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, the other thing I would say before we move on about like what happens to Cineva and Solar World, there's this study that I've been obsessing over um, that was published at Georgetown Law a few years ago that did kind of a deep dive of three case studies of Section 201 cases in the past. Um, lamb meat being one of them, wheat gluten being the other, and line pipe, the third one. And and it looked at what happened to those industries after the safeguards terminated. So what happens after the tariffs sunset? And it, it, I'll just quote from the study. The results of this study show that none of the three industries achieved sustained competitiveness after safeguards terminated. Instead, all three industries continued to decline against most major indicators of performance in the years after they terminated. So basically what that's saying is like you can, you can temporarily shore up domestic manufacturing by imposing protectionist measures, but that's not a long-term strategy. It helps you while those protectionist measures are in place, but once they sunset, you go right back to where you were. So this inevitably brings us to the bigger question, which is how do we support domestic manufacturing in this country? Uh, MJ Shao, the head of Americas for GTM Research, penned a piece with you over the weekend looking at some uh, political remedies outside of the ITC process that could boost domestic manufacturing without putting penalties on imported equipment. So uh, there are plenty of pathways here, and I'm really eager to walk through some of them. Uh, let's let's talk about the first, which is just extending the investment tax credit, basically creating a tiered tax credit for domestically produced products. Right. You know, and the premise here around the piece that we were writing is, is some because some people are saying it doesn't matter whether the U.S. manufactures this stuff or not. 
we should just install it. And and I actually don't share that view entirely. We think it it is sort of important to try to support domestic manufacturing, both for the economic jobs benefit, but also because there is a lot of technological innovation that's taking place in, in solar right now, um, incremental improvements to efficiency and lower cost and things like that. And you kind of do want to be home to that if you want to be a leader in this industry. So you know, we think it's a good thing to support domestic manufacturing. We just we just don't think that it's worth uh, cutting off the industry's nose to spite its face. So as it stands today, the the federal investment tax credit is going to step down from 30% um, beginning in 2019 through 2021. One idea would be let it step down, but have it retained at 30% or at some higher margin for any projects that utilize domestically manufactured modules or cells. So basically make the federal incentive slightly more beneficial if you're using domestic product. Um, depending on how big that differential is, that alone could uh, negate the cost benefit that you get from um, from using foreign modules, but it also does so in a way that doesn't sacrifice projects that need the cheapest possible module. I'm going to interrupt you with an important announcement. My email just lit up with a press release from Solar World Americas responding to the trade vote saying that they're going to hire 200 new workers by May as a direct result of this ITC vote. Uh, seems like a very political decision to me. Uh, what, what, any response to that? I mean, great. You know, like I'm happy to hear that they're they're rehiring 200 workers. They've had to lay a lot of people off in in their facilities the past couple of years. So, so that's good. Um, you know, if I'm being skeptical, like hiring 200 workers isn't going to do a whole lot to make up for the. You know, SIA estimates 80,000 jobs lost if Cineva gets its way in the final decision it could be less than 80,000, but certainly a couple orders of magnitude bigger than 200. Um, but you know, in the meantime, fantastic, hire some workers. Okay, let's, uh, let's steer ourselves back on track and go through some of these uh, other potential political tools that you outlined. The other is just federal procurement through the Buy American Act. And that is, you know, saying, uh, federal agencies, military, you should be buying American made equipment. Yeah, and largely we already do that. Um, most of the procurement, most of the the federal procurement of solar that takes place is, you know, by America compliant. So it was manufactured in the U.S. You could change the rules slightly around that and what you define as, as American made. But the big thing here is that that's not that big a market yet because the federal government, generally speaking, and the military don't have really aggressive targets for solar just yet. So one way, if you want to shore up domestic manufacturing and support companies like SolarWorld, uh, that you could do that is you could just set larger targets for federal procurement or military procurement of solar um, and make sure that you are enforcing the Buy America Act. Again, that carves out a market for them, but it does so in a way that doesn't sacrifice the rest of the market. I don't think we need to go through every single one of these, but the the most interesting one to me was subsidizing the solar supply chain. And you pointed to a 2013 NREL study that showed it wasn't just low-cost labor in China. It was actually the country uh, providing uh, subsidies for equipment that feeds into the cell and module manufacturing process. What did you find there? What lessons can we learn from China and other low-cost countries? Yeah, I mean, I think this is maybe the most challenging thing 
I think people, when they think about why is it cheaper to manufacture solar in China or Malaysia or Vietnam than it is in the U.S., they think it's labor. Um, and labor is actually a pretty small component of it. A much bigger piece of it is that there's a, a really well-built-up supply chain of all the sort of custom materials that you need to produce a solar panel, encapsulants and solar glass and coatings and things like that. And so in the last trade case, uh, there was a debate over whether China was subsidizing that supply chain. But then again, you know, even today, a lot of the panels that we import are not coming from China. They're coming from other countries in Southeast Asia. Either way, whether it's subsidized or not, those supply chains are well built up. It's easy to get encapsulant and solar glass and things like that at scale and at low cost. And, and because the U.S. does not have a big manufacturing base for solar right now, we're at a disadvantage in that regard. So one of the things you could do if you were really serious about trying to get you the U.S. to be competitive in solar manufacturing is you could focus not just on let's help a company build a solar panel manufacturing facility, but you could focus on that entire supply chain and make sure that we've got every piece of it that we need so that manufacturers can get all the, the equipment and components in order to make their things at scale. We're obviously very U.S.-centric, but it would be nice to put this in an international context. And your team on the global side has been uh, tracking trade protectionist measures all over the world. Can you give us a sense of where this fits into the rise of trade protectionism policies? Yeah, this is not a U.S.-specific phenomenon. Trade protectionism in solar has been on the rise globally for a few years now. Um, there's a piece that I've been working on with Ben Atia, who's on my team, we'll publish in, in the next week or two, looking at trade protectionism for solar globally. And just to put some numbers on it, um, the, um, the portion of the global solar market that is subject to some kind of protectionist trade measures, those could be import duties or tariffs or domestic content requirements, um, has risen, it basically doubled. It rose from 18% a couple of years ago to 36% last year. And that's excluding the US, which is obviously a big market. And then India, which also has a similar case to the US for which we're waiting on a decision. Um, and that also does not include, say, China, which is, you know, doesn't uh, actually have any protectionist measures in place, but is a sort of de facto closed off market for solar. So in addition to all these big countries, you know, the, the EU has this minimum import price regime um, directed at foreign manufacturing. There's protectionist measures in places like Turkey and South Africa, some emerging solar markets. And so it's getting to be more and more popular. But as we look out across all of these cases where these measures have been imposed, there's very little evidence that any of them have been effective. Generally speaking, what happens is a country, or in, in the case of the EU, a bunch of countries, um, introduce some kind of protectionist measure, and then either uh, importers figure out a way to get around those rules and continue importing, or they end up just you know paying for it, and solar gets to be a little bit more expensive in the market that imposed the rules. It, it hasn't really resulted in a bunch of new domestic manufacturing almost anywhere. So it's hard to find a place where it's been really effective, at least to do what we, what the protectionist measures are designed for. But nonetheless, um, it ends up being a big portion of the global solar market. So it's really not a, a global market anymore. It's becoming somewhat balkanized as a result of all these things. We've got a ton of listeners out there who are scratching their heads and 
running around trying to figure out what next, where can folks find out more detailed information from your team and how are you tracking this? Yeah, so we're sort of all hands on deck on this because it's obviously really important. So we've got a bunch of things. So we mentioned the the article that MJ and I posted today. Obviously, the GTM editorial side is going to keep covering this every day. We've also got um, Corey Honeyman, our, our head analyst for the U.S., is just finishing up now an updated analysis of, of what we think um, various levels of tariffs would actually do to the U.S. solar market over the next few years. We've, we've done this once before, but now we're going more granular and looking at gradations of tariffs and figuring out what the demand impact would be by, by segment, by state in the U.S. So that'll come out probably later this week. Um, there's a piece, like I said, on, on global trade protectionism that Benetia and I are collaborating with a partner on that'll be published um, either later this week, probably, or next week. So just you know, keep an eye out on all of the GTM channels, and you'll see lots of stuff from us. Yeah, for sure. My team's going to be uh, hitting the phones, talking to people across the spectrum who are going to be impacted by this potential case. And um, now we oh, and actually- also, I mean, you know, the big. The big next thing to watch is next Tuesday, um, October third. There's going to be the the ITC hearing. It's probably going to be this big. You know, you're going to the room is going to be packed. It's going to take eight hours. Um, I know a whole bunch of people who are flying to DC. I may end up flying to fly to DC to to attend it. Um, that's going to be a big deal. Shail Khan, thank you so much. You've been following this closely, and I always feel like I learn more when I talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, we're keeping our eyes on it as close as we can. And just a reminder. Go to our homepage today. It is uh, Monday the 25th, and you can see the piece that MJ and Shale wrote together, plus uh, a bunch of stories from our editorial team with reactions from around the industry, greentechmedia.com, other products at gtmresearch.com. I am Stephen Lacey with my co-host Shale Khan. Hit us up on Twitter. Send us an email at podcast at greentechmedia.com. Thanks, everybody. This is the Interchange Weekly Conversations on the Global Energy Transformation.